Sue Ann Hunter works in the space of trauma and healing practices. She's worked in Indigenous child and family welfare for more than 20 years. She's been a commissioner on the Uruk Justice Commission for the past couple of years. Uruk means truth in the Wemba Wemba language from Victoria. The Commission is the first truth-telling body in Australia and focuses on injustices against First Nations people. Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me. What an honour to be discussing all this with you. I'm just um, I'm honoured to, to be on the show, so thank you. Well, I'm pretty excited and I thought before we got into the really great work that you're doing at the moment, I'd start by asking you where you grew up and what's shaped your worldview, particularly your focus on social justice? I don't really, I've never really spoken about where I grew up. So I'm one of six kids and during primary school we moved around a lot because Dad was a baker. Um, he's a strong Wurundjeri man. And so we moved around a lot for, for a lot of reasons, which I'll get into a bit later. But we ended up living in Broadmeadows, um, which wasn't, um, people say it's not the best suburb of Melbourne, but I learned a lot there. And um, those years of primary school of moving around and then finally settling and then being the only Aboriginal family in a school and understanding starting to understand what it really meant to be a young Aboriginal girl and understanding about starting to understand colonisation, that started to shape who I who I wanted to become, my world, my view of the world, that the world was unjust at a really quite early age, I think about six or seven, started to really understand that the world is unjust and, and we need, there needs to be fighters in this world and um, that not everybody's equal. I think it, it all started quite young for me, I think. I really understand that. I sort of feel like I got the fire in my belly quite young. It's it's such a um, a strong experience for First Nations people growing up, I think. Um, You've got such a big body of work before you even came to the Commission. What drew you into wanting to work in the space of wellbeing, um, healing families and children? So I started working at VACA, Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, and I think it was working with, because we hear about the trauma a lot and, and, you know, we all carry that with us as Aboriginal people, whatever that looks like. And I think really working one-on-one casework directly with young Aboriginal children and families, really I wanted to understand how... I could work better and how I could heal. And it was, it wasn't, it's not just, it wasn't just a job, um, you know, way back then. It was a, how do I make life better for others? Um, Because I just remember coming into, you know, within, within my first week of of being a caseworker, having um, disclosures of like, you know, abuse from young kids to me was like, wow, how am I going to handle this? And I thought, that's just me. I'm uncomfortable. Imagine how uncomfortable they are. So I wanted to make it um, that I could understand it. And then I started to get into a bit more into sort of the therapy side of it. And then I like to learn a lot of different sort of therapies and pull them apart and put them back together with culture as the foundation. And so I found that fascinating. And so... um, it helped me do what I do with, um, I guess, uh, the kids and families. But it also helped me heal um, because I thought I can't heal others until I start healing. So the journey of learning all that helped me heal and I really reflected on my own my own journey up until then. Um, 
And it's just so rewarding when you see people want to take that on and start to heal. So, yeah, it was a bit, it's a bit of a journey. It's still an ongoing journey. I mean, it's, and I'm learning a lot where I am now around healing and looking at things differently in a really big leadership role. Well, yes, let's get to that because it feels like all of those things that you learned along the way have really equipped you um, for the role you've got now. Um, For people who don't know, and since it's really unique in Australia, can you tell us a bit about what the role of the Uruk Justice Commission is? Yeah, so one, it's an honour to be a commissioner on this uh, on Uruk. So uh, Uruk is a wamble wamble word for truth. So it's a truth and justice commission. It's the first uh, formal commission in all of Australia uh, to hold uh, the state to account around the systemic injustices from 1788 onwards. Now, it is only for Victoria. Um, but it's the first state to actually have a truth-telling body. So you can liken it to, you know, South Africa or, um, you know, one of those, uh, Canada, those truth and um, justice or reconciliation commissions. We're a truth and justice commission, although ours is extremely broad. So the mandate is systemic injustice to, to look at, um, to look at what had happened what and how we rectify that and make recommendations and remedy for change. So 1788 to current is a no small feat. Let me tell you when you read those letters, Peyton, I think I was very overwhelmed and I'm still, you still grapple with it every day, the enormity of it. Just that um, I've kind of followed you as you've been doing this work because it's so groundbreaking and I'm always completely impressed by how much energy you're putting into it and how much ground you're covering, both in a geographical sense and then also in a historical sense. I was just wondering from that process of having people come in and, and, you know, tell their stories to you sometimes for the first time, what impact do you see that having on the people who are coming before you with their stories? and their communities more broadly? Look, it's really, they're really hard. I, I, you know, I say this all the time. They're really hard stories to tell and they're really hard stories to hear. And as the state, we need to lean into these stories. People are brave, very brave, and I don't use that lightly. And they show their strength in coming forward and telling their stories. Um, uh, an example is of a, an auntie in one of our on-country, we were doing an on-country sort of uh, round table and and yarning circle type thing. And um, she told the story of her very first child and how that child was removed, which was a pretty graphic story. Her other children were in the room and that was the first time they'd heard that story as well. And so, um, you know, when we finished, I went up to Arnie and I said, hey, are you Okay. And she said, yeah, I feel like a weight's lifted off my shoulders because I don't, I feel like I've handed it to you now because you're going to write the new narrative for the state. And I said, yeah, we are. And that that story makes up part of that narrative. And then I rang her again the next day and I said to her, I just wanted to check in um, and make sure you're okay because it was such a a big story to tell. And the emotion in the room, you, you know, you could just feel it. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. And, um... She said, "Bub, I feel so much better. I have that off my chest." And she said, "I don't. You don't need to ring me again. And if I need you, I'll reach out." It was just the most amazing. Um, that's that people have never been heard. One, they've never had the opportunity to tell a story, or people that are telling their stories said, "This is the first time I've been heard." Uh, 
it's, you know, you get goosebumps every time. You just feel honoured and privileged. These stories are sacred stories. And some people say, you know, we know these stories, so I don't need to tell you mine. I'm like, yours is unique. Yours is individual. What's happened to you? That incident may have happened to others, but how you process it and how you went through it is unique to you. So keeping people in a really, you know, um, held through these stories is really uh, how we get how we're sort of getting the work done, I guess. But um, I'm just amazed at people's strength, their the way they their dignity. I think dignity is a really big word. The way they hold themselves when all these atrocities have happened to them, and also telling stories about their families and ancestors. So true. And one of the things I love about that anecdote that you shared with us is it it must encapsulate. Um, what's so rewarding about the role, but also what the challenge is, that weight that's now on you to be reframing uh, this history Mm. of the state, as Auntie told you. So can you share with us what you're finding as the real highs and then some of the challenges of the role? So the real highs are getting out on country. How honoured am I that I get to travel around the country and talk to mob? What a job, right? (laughs) It's just, it's just, you know, you could be having the worst week because just everything's, you know, sort of upon you. And then you get out on country and it's with mob and, you know, you're not really a commissioner. You're there to hear their stories and you're just part of the community. I love that's, that gives us strength to keep going because every time we're out there, we draw on those those, you know, everything, everything about culture of being on country. Um, And I get to learn about all the different mobs around the state and hear their stories and we go to sacred sites and we don't just hear stories of sadness and doom. We hear stories of, you know, power, strength um, and, and reawakening culture. So they're amazing. I think the other part where, look, I have to say I feel most powerful is when we hold hearings and we're holding the state to account um, I feel the strength of mob because we've never, as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we've never had state on the stand with uh, Aboriginal people holding them to account and asking them those difficult questions where they have to answer them. Also asking for those documents to be delivered, which have had a bit of argy-bargy uh, that, that we need to see. Um, a good example of that is, you know, the state knew in Victoria, that the um, the bail reform laws would adversely affect Aboriginal people, and it did adversely. It also, in that time, there's been deaths in custody, and the amount of people that are held for the amount of time um, on remand in jail for particularly Aboriginal women is is absolutely ridiculous. So we've been able to see documents where they knew these things would affect us but they did it anyway, and then hold them to account. So they are amazing moments for us as Aboriginal people. Um, and, and I say all of us because we don't do this alone. We couldn't do this without mob. I feel like I don't feel like a commissioner. I feel like a facilitator of voice, um, and, and that's what you know we want to do. That the hard stuff is is you know it's very legal. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a social worker and so I feel like a bush lawyer at the moment. I'm, I'm starting to learn a lot. Um, they're the difficult times of how do you – because it's – how do I put it? It's – we're under a royal commission, like – and we're talking about black followers of knowing, being and doing and they clash every single day. 
and we have to navigate that to get justice for our people. That's the difficult thing. The other difficult thing is it's another Royal Commission, right? No one trusts them. And then we explain to people the difference with this Royal Commission is that we have the First People's Assembly who also get a recommendation. So MOP's still accountable in that respect of pushing these recommendations through as we go. So we have a report coming out on the 30th of August uh, that is uh, is the two streams we just did, which is child protection and criminal justice. So that's exciting. So that should be released the first week in uh, September. I'll have to have you back on to talk about that. I just want to dig into something that you said there because it is very true that the work that you're doing in Victoria sits in with the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is also a groundbreaking institution compared to what's happening in other states. And, you know, there is a treaty process that's that's um, taking place there as well. How do you see this really important work that you're doing of truth-telling fitting in with those uh, those other streams, those those other agendas? So I've had to sort of navigate that a lot with people. And so the way I sort of put it is we're like the researchers and we're gathering the evidence so that they can uh, negotiate these issues that we've been putting up with for a long time and these injustices with the government and we've got enough evidence to back it up to say, hey, we already know, but what you're doing is not working and this is what our people want. I think it's pretty simple. So our recommendations, what is happening with them is we'll have recommendations for now that things need to be addressed now. They can't wait for a treaty because we don't know how long that's going to take. And then we have the long-term recommendations around the possibility of what this could look like or, or what the treaty could negotiate into a treaty for us as First Peoples of Victoria. It's no small thing. And, you know, obviously we've, we've mentioned a couple of things that are, you know, the, the first in the country that are happening mm. in Victoria. What do you hope this might mean for other jurisdictions and particularly in the space that you're working? If other jurisdictions are looking to go down this path of effectively a, a, a truth-telling commission, what is the advice that you would give them? The advice I'd give them is that make sure you've got the powers to compel and make sure it's not just an inquiry without any powers because, you know, as we've seen, the state will hold off on stuff uh, or not deliver. It's a pretty big thing. We're coming into land justice. So I would say this is going to be a really testing time uh, because we've already seen in criminal justice and child protection the trying not to, you know, to use everything not to give us certain documents. So I think land justice is going to be more prominent in that. You just need this broad... We're lucky we've got five commissioners with a broad skill set. So one of our commissioners isn't um, Aboriginal. He's He's a former Supreme Court judge and he's great in understanding uh, laws, royal commissions, you know, those sorts of things we can go and just have this debate about and pick his brain. I'm sort of in the wellbeing space, the the telling, the, the social work type space where uh, we've got Maggie uh, Walter, who's uh, Palawa, who's a, um, a, a research, just an academic really. I, I don't even know what to say. She's an amazing woman and will be a lifelong friend after going through this. And then uh, our chair is... Um, 
Auntie Eleanor Burke and her background's education, but she's also worked a lot in government. So we can navigate those sort of, um, she has a lot of rich history, which is great for us to understand history. And then we've just got a, uh, not so new, he's been there six months. Um, Travis Lovett is the other commissioner and he's worked in government, but he's also worked on land and waters. So we've got this dynamic where we can all call on each other for different, I guess, abilities that, that we're sort of uh, really understand. And you need a group of people that, that get along and that can really work together. I would say think about what your outcome is as you're setting it up and your outcome is solely self-determination for our people, I would believe. And so that is at the forefront of our mind every day. How do we get self-determination? Justice is, is the middle, is the, I think justice is sort of the easy piece in a truth-telling commission. I think the hard part is going to be getting self-determination. So there's a lot of goodwill and I would say call on the goodwill of other people that want to come forward and assist and the use the allies and um, but also listen to mob how they want it ran because this could turn into a, a very, you know, sanitised version if you let it. Um, but how you listen to mob and how you hold mob and how you don't re-traumatise mob is really, really an important part of the work. It's very easy to see how, given your... Um, reflections on the impact that the work's having, that the Commission will have a profound legacy and people who've mm. engaged with it and, and the whole process of, of truth-telling. Yeah. I just wonder from your perspective, I mean, you came into this role uh, with a very strong history working in the community in very difficult areas. How has the work changed you? What impact has it had on you personally? I think I think the good thing for me is that I've had I've started at casework. I started, you know, on the ground with mob and then worked my way through. I think that one of the things is I understand those difficulties on the ground right through uh, to, but what has changed me is that I haven't seen this top player before. I don't think anybody has in, you know, because there's been no other uh, truth-telling commission and that how we interact with government and to actually see and understand how these policies affect our mob on the ground and that there's no how they're translated down the line is really, I guess, um, it's a bit disheartening. And so what it's changed is in me is to really, really rigorously go through these policies, these laws that affect our people adversely and understand them enough to hold the state to account. Um, and I never thought I'd have the opportunity to even be here, let alone say that. Um, but it's, you know what, it's changed me and I have more drive, I have more determination and it's re reinvigorated me that there's so much work to be done because we only see our pockets but when you see a whole state and you, and you see the pocket that you've been working in, it's actually so much worse at another, you know, another community that doesn't have the resources that we have sort of around Melbourne and as you further you go out... They're mob that need us. They're the mob that need change more than we do because they don't have anything. So it's given me this bird's eye view. It's reinvigorated me. It's, um, you know, I just want to see change for our kids. That's what I want to see change for. You know, I want to, I want to be part of making our way towards self-determination and you know what, I don't, I'm not, I think the only legacy is what I want to leave is that 
my daughter and the future, you know, her, my grandchildren, whenever that is going to happen and down the road, I, I want them just to be, say, you know, that's that's my line that stood up for us in that Royal Commission. If it makes a bigger impact on our mob and it gives them drive and determination, then I'm really happy for that. But I, I've never really been in it for a legacy piece. I think I just want change for mob. Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, thank you so much for all the really important impactful work that you're doing and for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> 